Jim and uh, worship team, and uh, thank you, Martin, as well. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Ah. Good morning, everyone. Over the next few weeks, we are attempting to answer some of the really big questions in life and faith, and this morning, we are going to commence with um, perhaps the, the biggest question of all. George Barner, the public opinion pollster, was commissioned to conduct a national survey and to ask people one question. And the question was this. If you could ask God only one question and you knew what, uh, he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the top response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And I believe that the presence of suffering and evil in a world created by God who defines himself as love is the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. In a YouTube video that went viral last year, comedian Stephen Fry denounced God as capricious mean-minded and stupid for not bringing an end to human suffering and for allowing such things as bone cancer in children. That video was downloaded by 7 million people. In fairness to Stephen Fry, he is only asking the same questions that millions of people have asked down through the centuries and millions of people across our world are asking today, and perhaps some of you here this morning, that you have that same question. And maybe many people who ask that question don't have the academic brilliance of Stephen Fry or the amazing eloquence to articulate their feelings. But I guess that that is truly the number one question that people will ask in our day and age. Before I really get started into this subject this morning, a subject that I've lost a little bit of sleep over, and uh, I've had a few nightmares of standing here and not having anything to say, I've got two things to say. Firstly, I want to confess that I don't have all the answers to this question, but I believe I have some of the answers. You see, speaking on this subject is a little bit like doing a jigsaw. The more jigsaw pieces that you have, the clearer the picture becomes. And I will confess this morning that I or no one else in this world has all the jigsaw pieces. But we have some of the jigsaw pieces. And we can, I believe, make some sense of suffering and why it exists in a world created by a loving God. The second thing I want to say this morning is the, that due to lack of time, I will probably have 35, maybe 40 minutes this morning. I'll not be able to deal comprehensively with all of your questions about suffering. And if you want to know more about this, um, we did a, a series in this church early last year, which we're uploading onto podcast on our website for this week. And the series was entitled, Where is God When Life Hurts? And the, from memory, four or five talks on this subject, and uh, I think that that might be of help to you. So if I don't answer some of your questions this morning, then please go on to that website and start the discussion with us. But the question is this, 
How can evil and suffering exist in a world created by a loving God? A a question which is often abbreviated just to two words. Why God? Why didn't you do something? Why did you just look on? This week in the newspapers we've seen the, uh, again, the, the story of the murder of 15-year-old Paige Doherty, who was stabbed 146 times before her body was dumped in a woodland area in Clydebank in Scotland. Many people have said, why God? I know that some will be very quick to come to God's defense and say, well, surely God can't be blamed for the deliberate actions of some psychopathic human being. But others might say, Why didn't God step in? Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God come to her rescue? Why didn't God send send someone, send an angel? He's done it before. Make sure that the police were there. Strike this man dead. And when we're on the subject, why doesn't God do something about Syria where 10,000 innocent children have been killed in the conflict? And many more have been injured, sexually abused, or recruited for combat. And what about the crop failures, again, in drought-ridden sub-Saharan Africa, where 20 million people just now are facing hunger and malnutrition? And by the way, thank you so much last week in our Harvest Festival that you um, donated well over £1,000 to send off. So thank you. For you a generosity in doing that. But I think maybe a good place to start this morning is by quoting to you a statement that was raised by a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus, uh, who lived about 300 years before Jesus. And his statement is the standard on this subject this morning. And this is what he said. Either God wants to abolish evil and cannot. Or he can, but does not want to. Or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to, but cannot, he is impotent. He's powerless. He's incapable. But if he can and does not want to, then he is wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil then how come there is evil in the world? And Epicurus' statement there, about 300 years before Jesus, gets really to the heart of the problem that's facing us. Because he is saying it's illogical to believe in a God who is both all-powerful and all-good. That if God is all-powerful, then he can do anything he wants, including getting rid of evil and suffering from the world. If he is all-good, he will have a desire to do that, to get rid of evil and suffering. But as the argument goes, since we have suffering and evil all around us, either God is not all-good, or he is not all-powerful, or maybe he doesn't exist at all. And that's the problem of evil and suffering at its most basic. Let's think about this. What do we mean when we say that God is all-powerful? And I've just put a statement up on screen there. God is all-powerful and can do anything. Now, I'm not going to ask a show of hands this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you. 
But if you believe with that statement, nod. If you think that that is a bad statement, shake your head. Okay, that's interesting. Some of you are nodding. Some of you are shaking. Some of you are sort of doing a diagonal <laughs> movement, which I'm not really sure about that. And some of you have, you know, just stillness, which is saying to me that you're either unsure of the answer or you're asleep. Maybe the latter for some of you. I believe, for clarity purposes, if that statement is true, we've got to add a few more words. Three more words. And that is, God is all-powerful and can do anything that makes sense. And the reason I put those words in, without wishing to sound a heretic... There are some things that God cannot do. For example, God cannot make himself cease to exist. God cannot make good evil or evil good. God cannot make mistakes. God cannot commit sin. There's one more thing, at least, that God cannot do. And that is God cannot give humans free will and at the same time withhold free will from those humans. Because that would be an absolute contradiction. God cannot do the two things. Free will is a gift which God has given to all people. It's a gift that we've all abused. And you could say that God himself had a choice right at the start of whether he made humans robots who were programmed always to love him, always to do good when he desired. But he gave us the freedom of choosing for ourselves. The freedom of choosing whether we should love him and do good rather than evil. But you see, the danger in giving us free will is that we might use that free will which he has given us to abuse and kidnap and murder and slander and gossip and do evil or to drop a bomb on a Yemeni funeral service killing 140 people and injuring over 500 as we saw in the news this week. You see, if you give your teenager £10 pocket money each week and then you stepped in every time that he or she was going to use that pocket money unwisely according to your judgment, I would say, is that really their money at all? Or is it your money which you are using indirectly through your teenager? But when God gives us freedom of choice, he does so in a hands-off way. You see, he created free people, free people to do what we please, not in some predetermined robot kind of way where we always end up doing what he pleases. We have the freedom to love him and to do good. But we also have the freedom to turn our backs on God, as many people do, and to do the evil such as the murderer of Paige Doherty. Therefore, I would argue that God is not the creator of evil, that the source of evil is mankind's freedom. Let me ask another question. If God created a world without human freedom, would it have been a place without hate? And my answer to that is yes. Would it have been a place without suffering? Again, my answer to that is yes. But it also would have been a place without love. 
which is the highest value in the universe, real love, love for God, love for others, must always involve choice. But with the granting of that choice, there's always a possibility that people will choose hate rather than love. On Monday, just gone, I picked up my grandchildren, Emily and Eli, from school. And um, when they saw me waiting for them, their faces just lit up. Their arms opened wide. I thought they were genuinely excited to see Grandad. And they ran to me. And as ever, my heart just melted. And I felt like I was like a big pool on the spot. You see, I am glad that God has not made them robots pre-programmed just to show a happy face when I pick them up from school. But they just merely show some kind of appearance of love which is only a facade or a smokescreen, only to get the treats when they got home from school. You see, the fact that they have freedom to love me or not, I believe is the most wonderful gift in the world. Could you imagine a world without true love? Most suffering in our world has its origins in the actions of people. And I believe that sufferings are caused through the bad things that we do and they are caused also through the good things that we fail to do. But another question. What about the suffering caused through natural disasters? That's a much harder question. The tsunamis and the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the like. And I would say to you this morning that the first part of what I've had to say, you know, we've been showing the the human element of suffering in the world. I'm sure that you can see that. You know, you can agree with what I'm saying. But how on earth can there be a human element here in the natural disasters? Well, Well, I would say to you that there is. A very often... Human suffering is caused because of shoddy workmanship or the use of inferior materials or the decision to build homes on earthquake fault lines and so forth. Last year there was um, a terrible earthquake in Nepal just outside uh, Kathmandu. And the earthquake registered 7.8 on the Richter scale, causing the deaths of over 9,000 people with another 22,000 people injured. And many people at that occasion asked the question, why God, this natural disaster? Following the earthquake in Nepal, I remember reading a very interesting article by a guy who was an earthquake engineer. Yes, I didn't know they existed either. Earthquake engineer. And it was entitled, Earthquakes Don't Kill People, Buildings Do. And this article commenced by saying that the earthquake may have caught the people of Nepal off guard, but it didn't come as a surprise. Because many earthquake experts around the world for a long time had been expecting this disaster, this devastation to happen in Nepal because of the fault lines that it sits on. But Kathmandu, unlike Los Angeles, is filled with buildings which are not made to stand up to an earthquake. 
So this kind of devastation and catastrophe was expected to come at some time. And experts were saying that this essentially, the devastation, the chaos, was an issue of economics. Technology is available. It's available to earthquake-proof buildings. And if there was sufficient foreign investment to developing countries like Nepal, such catastrophes could be avoided. Another example in this week's news, you might have seen it. A three-year-old girl was pulled alive from a collapsed building in China. You may say, good news. Yes, it was good news. But there was also bad news because the only reason that she survived because she had been protected by the loving arms of her parents who shielded her. What was the reason for collapse? Well, the buildings were built in the 1970s by their farmer owners. who They were poorly constructed. And to make matters worse, over the years since the 1970s, extra floors had been added, weakening the structures, making them unstable. And what I'm doing, I'm just picking some events of great suffering this week from the news. Again, we can see a human error as the reason for much suffering. Last weekend, the devastation to Haiti through Hurricane Matthew <clears throat> is another example. The BBC News website, and you can look this up yourself, uh, ran an article entitled Hurricane Matthew. How are Haiti and Florida coping? Provides a fascinating insight, actually, in the two places. Both of them were hit by the same devastating hurricane. And we've got uh, some folk from Florida here today. And maybe they can tell you firsthand what, that, what happened there um, last, last week. But in Florida, 600,000 people were left without power. But help was on hand because the power company deployed 15,000 engineers to sort out the problem. In Haiti, it was a different story. In the city of Jeremy on the southern peninsula, 80%, four out of every five houses were flattened. In the Sud province, 30,000 homes were destroyed and over 900 people killed. The Red Cross estimates that over one million people have been affected by this. And the United Nations say that over 350,000 people are in need of humanitarian assistance due to hunger and also the outbreak of cholera. Quite a contrast. Yes, there was suffering in Florida, but nothing like Haiti. And I believe, you know, that the severity of these tragedies is not due to an act of God, but essentially due to an act of economics. And the gross inequalities between the richer industrial nations and the, the rest of the world. A shocking statistic for you. Do you know... Can you turn the uh, heater off, please? Before I faint. <laughs> Maybe some of you are praying for that to get a quick end to the sermon. I don't know. Some terrible, terrible statistics. Did you know... That 21,000 children die each day from malnutrition and contaminated drinking water. That is about the total number of all the children in Tamworth die somewhere in the world every day. Thousands of people around the world die through hunger. 
And yet, the world that God created has more than enough food for everyone on the planet. Very often it is corrupt political and governmental rulers living in their lavish premises and building up military equipment in their lands while their people starve. Do you know that the world produces one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet? The world can produce up to food for up to 10 billion people. And yet, 16% of the world's population, which is uh, that little sector that you see there in front of you, 16% of the world consumes 80% of the world's resources. Whereas the other 84% just has 20% of the world's resources left. I'm going to do a little experiment. I'm not going to embarrass you more than just asking this section to stand up, please. Thank you. Sorry if I woke you from sleep. That's, uh, that's just, just stand up if you can. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm not going to embarrass you. Now, if I had this, a great big cake here, and I said, you know, we're going to share this out, but these guys had more than three quarters of the cake, what would you all think? I oh, know I won't. I won't. Please sit down. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't answer that. You see, to me at least, it seems unreasonable to blame God for the inequalities that we have created in our world. It reminds me a little bit of the of a cartoon I saw of two turtles. One says, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. And the other turtle says, I'm afraid that God might ask me the same question. Think about that. Okay. Some of you might say, okay, Steve, agree with you through most of what you've said this morning, that the world's suffering is caused through, through humans. But why does God allow earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis at all? Why are they there at all? Wouldn't it be better if just God prevented them all from happening? And if that's your question this morning, that's a good question. It's a really good question. And I would attempt to answer that in two ways. The first thing I would say that even our weather systems and climate changes which cause drought in places like sub-Saharan Africa and also flooding in places like Bangladesh are actually caused by Western nations. It was Dr. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He wrote an excellent article for the Daily Telegraph a couple of years back. And it was entitled, The Rich West is Ruining Our Planet. And the strap line to the article was this. The industrialized economies have created climate change, but the poorest are paying price for it. We must do more to help. Now, I don't have time this morning, I really don't, to explore that one with you. Look up the article, you can Google it yourselves. And, but I just wanted to sort of give that as an idea that, you know, even this, even climate change can be down to us. Secondly, this question of why God allows hurricanes and tsunamis and the like needs to be answered another way. 
The Bible tells us that the world was thrown into chaos when humans rebelled against God. The once perfect world became imperfect and human beings became infected with sickness, with disease and with death. In fact, the whole cosmos was affected by what we call natural disasters, which are symptoms of the malfunction between the creation and the creator. The the world which God created was very good. But since humanity's rebellion against God, both humans and creation have been subject to decay and death. This is what Paul, St. Paul, writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know... That all creation has been groaning as in the pains of, chi- pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And I think that that is an incredibly good description of our planet. A groaning planet. But the good news is that it's not always going to be like this. You know, a pregnant mother-to-be is groaning in childbirth. But when her baby is born, that gro- groaning turns into joy. And Paul says that the planet that we live on, Earth, is like that mother. It's been groaning for some time now. But there's coming a time when the groaning will turn to joy. A time when God will eradicate suffering and earthquakes and tsunamis and famine from this groaning planet. There's coming a day when all things will be restored to their former glory. There will be new heavens and a new Earth. Which means that the suffering in this life is only temporary. You know, I've often said that computers are wonderful slaves but terrible masters. They go wrong. They won't do what you want them to do. They pick up a virus. They malfunction. They frustrate the life out of us. But very often you can press that button on a computer which says, restore your computer to manufacturer settings. And by clicking that tab, it will take the computer back to how it was when you purchased it. And one day, God himself is going to restore this world to the manufacturer's settings. Some of you might say, if God has the power to eradicate evil and suffering, why doesn't he get on with it? Why doesn't he do it? But I would say, Just because God hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. You know, criticizing God for not sorting out this groaning planet is a little bit like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not tying up the loose ends of the plot. It's just like that. But Christians believe that there is coming a day when God himself will redress the balances of this world. Let's say... January the 1st, 2016, you had a terrible day. You went to the dentist because you had a painful root canal. You crashed your car. Some family member of yours contracted some awful disease. You heard that you'd failed your exams. A friend betrayed you. From start to finish, January the 1st, 2016 was a terrible day. But then every other day of the year was absolutely plain terrific. You win £5 million on the European lottery. After giving a gift to the church, you manage to keep a million to yourself. (laughs) You get promoted in work to your dream job. If you're single, you find the person of your dreams who falls madly in love with you. 
You get married, you have an idyllic marriage, you spend three months in the Seychelles. You have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the year. Next year, New Year's Day, someone asks you, so how was 2016? And you say, it was great, what an incredible year, it was fantastic, oh my word. And the person says to you, yeah, but, but didn't it start off really difficult for you? Wasn't there some suffering there? And you think, you think, oh my word, yes there was. Do you know what? I've forgotten all about that. But when we, one day, after experiencing the suffering of this life, and, you know, I don't want to demean that in any way. When we have been in heaven, 69,527,356 days with an infinite more to come. And we sort of look back and someone says, well, how has your journey been? That is earth, not only heaven. And we just say, Wow. It was unbelievable. You know, what I'm saying is that I believe that the suffering, as real as it is in this life, will just pale into insignificance in that place. Maybe the best advice on this subject comes from Sonny in the best exotic Marigold Hotel. You didn't know he was a theologian, did you? When he said every... Everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, then it's not yet the end. Christians believe that God is all-knowing. That he knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future. And if that is so, then it is possible that God might know or even allow some suffering in your life because somewhere down the line, he can see of immense good coming from that. We can't see it because we don't live in that plane. But God can see it. You know, there's a story, story in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually, which uh, highlights this. Do you remember the story in the first book of the Bible in Genesis with Joseph? All those things that went wrong in that young man's life. He was beaten up by his jealous brothers. He was sold on to foreigners. He was sold on again as a slave. Accused of tempted rape. Put in prison, he was forgotten about. He experienced considerable suffering and pain over the years. He had no idea what was happening to him. And then in one stroke of the pen, God turned his many negatives into an amazing positive when he became Prime Minister of Egypt. He met up with his brothers some time later, looked them in the eye and said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And God does that sort of thing. And God allows sometimes the tough things in our lives, the things that we don't like, the things that cripple us, those places of suffering. And then somewhere down the line, God because... God is God. He can turn the whole thing around. Maybe the greatest example of our all-knowing God turning suffering into blessing is the story of Easter. God demonstrates the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world ended up as being the best thing that ever happened in the history of the world. 
the death of Christ on a cross. At the time, no one could see how anything good could ever result from that tragedy, including his own disciples. The ultimate evil resulted in the ultimate good. And we might experience suffering in our lives, which at some later occasion will turn into a blessing. Because God is God. I'm virtually done. Let me come into land. Let me just speak to you more personally for a moment. You see, the question of suffering which we're dealing with today isn't just for debate in the the philosophy departments at various universities, but it's also very personal. And some of us here today might be suffering in all sorts of different ways in our lives, day by day. We might put on a smile for other people, but we know that we have great hurt in our lives, confusion, an aching heart, brokenness. And at such times as these, an academic or an intellectual answer isn't what's required. What is required is someone who knows what you're experiencing to come alongside you, someone who cares deeply for you. And that's the message of the Christian faith because that someone is God. God understands our suffering completely because he's experienced it. No one could ever accuse God of being detached or uh, uh, uninterested or uninvolved in our lives, sitting back on his heavenly armchair, you know, when we suffer down here on planet Earth. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, he came to where we are and suffered firsthand. He's been down here at the sharp end. And as someone once said, the best treatment for a bleeding wound is not a lecture on suffering, but a friend with a bandage. And I would say to you this morning, that if you're a person who denies the existence of God, or maybe you disbelieve in his ability to help you, then you actually rob yourself of a source of relief. For God is a God who promises to heal the brokenhearted and to bind up their wounds. He is a God who promises never to leave us or forsake us. The writer of Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters row and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And what an incredible picture there in that psalm. The picture that the psalmist is giving us is a picture of chaos and catastrophe. And that was his experience through the the storms of life with all this devastation and pain. But even so, he says that God was still there beside him as a refuge bringing him strength to face the storms. And that promise is also for each one of us. I believe it's only Jesus who can make a sense of suffering. For as someone once said, the ultimate answer to suffering is not an explanation. It's an incarnation. God coming to where we are. And this morning, I would invite you, if that fits, if that's about you. Yes, you know, in one sense this morning, I might have spoken to your intellects. 
But I'm also speaking to your hearts. I'm speaking to you as people because I don't know very often all the stuff, the rubbish, the bad stuff, the hurt that's going on in your lives. And I would invite you right now to invite him, the answerer, the one who is a refuge and a friend, the one who is our strength and our hope to come in to that situation and into our lives. So would you stand with me, guys, if you'd like to come back and lead us in our final song. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, our prayer is that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us receptive hearts to understand, that you are a God who is all-powerful, all-good, all-wise, and all-knowing. Help us to trust your ways, O Lord, we pray. For those, Lord, who are experiencing suffering right now, I just pray, Lord, that you will give them the gift of faith. Instead of looking at the difficulty and the hurt and the sorrow, but they would look above that, Lord, I pray, and they would look to you. And I encourage you just to do that now. Just before these sing these great words of our last song, just in this moment, just take that moment to say, Lord, don't understand it all. I've got all the answers. But I am going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I know it will mean something significant for me the rest of the days of my life. But I really sense I must trust you. I must give my life to you. You are the one who cares for me and loves me. Just make that your prayer now. <clears throat>